Father, thanks for this morning and uh, just the chance to get together, to get in your word, to talk about um, baptism, Lord's Supper, and uh, just pray that as we begin this conversation and, and continue in it, that we would honor you and, and uh, Father, just that you'd give us clarity and thought. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We're going to be jumping into the two, what, what have been called the sacraments of worship or the ordinances of worship. And I'll get into that word ordinance and sacrament in, in a minute. I'm not going to jump immediately into the word ordinance and sacrament because I know some of you are going, well, should we call it a sacrament or ordinance? And some, some people get worked up about that. Most, many of you may not care. Some of you may care. So we'll, we'll, we'll address that in a minute. But we're going to talk about these two ordinances or sacraments. Jesus only gave the church two and he, that he told us to practice. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. He gave us two of them. He told us to practice them. And um, as a part of our corporate worship, and, that, and we, we see them as important. Um, unfortunately, what's happened in, in most of evangelicalism now is the importance of the sacraments or the ordinances has sort of been pushed down to the point where it's sort of optional whether you ever participate in them or not. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's kind of like, a, maybe we will, maybe we won't. Um, and especially the Lord's Table, especially the Lord's Table, has, has become a kind of optional sort of unimportant kind of thing. Um, it's just memorial. And so because it's just a memory, I don't really need that thing to remind me. And so so then something like excommunication, which is where you're not allowed to participate anymore in the church, really doesn't have any sting or bite to it, does it? So what? It just reminds me of things I already know. Big deal. It doesn't actually, it, it's not actually beneficial to me in the, the long run. Do you guys follow me on that? And, and, and so these kinds of changes have happened as a result of kind of the the minimizing of these in worship. And I'm talking about these two before I get into just the concept of worship in the church in general, which I hope to get into next week, or at least begin into next week, because these two things are central to the church's worship. And they're the two things we talk about the least. When we talk about worship, people sit around and they talk about worship. What's the first thing they talk about? Music. Music. Skinny jeans. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> Music. The rock star music pastor, right? That's right. Joel's like, yeah. Yeah. Joel's the one who helped me understand that not all music ministers need to be rock stars. Joel helped me understand that. They don't even have to. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So. All right. Yeah, I okay. But. So you have the. Joel was not a hipster music pastor, just so we know, and it killed that need in my mind. All right, so we're going to look at these two seconds because we always think about music first. Sometimes we even jump, if you're really uh, holy, you jump to preaching, right? But what we don't often talk about, we'll talk about prayer, preaching, music, which are all important to a worship service, corporate worship, don't get me wrong. They're all commanded elements of corporate worship. What people almost never talk about is baptism and the Lord's Supper when they talk about corporate worship. It's almost entirely missing from the conversation. Though those are the only two ordinances or sacraments that were given to us for corporate worship. Um, we don't almost ever talk about them as part of it. Part of that is because of sort of an anti-Catholic, Roman Catholic bias that's kind of run amok. And so we'll get into that a little bit. So here's what I want to do to talk about that. Um, and, and, how many of you guys are like online or have access to the London Baptist Confession? Anybody here? Right now with you. 
Okay, so if you have access to it, or then share, if you don't, share with somebody next to you. You do look for the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. Specifically, I think I'm looking at Spurgeon's version of it. Um, you know what, John, actually, do we have Apple TV in here today? Yeah. Why don't you just pull it up there? Slide the TV out and pull it up. Huh? It's not on your... Um, it's not on Creeds and Confessions. It's not on Creeds and Confessions. It, it is. You just have to go and add it. So you can go to what chapter did you say, Chad? Chapter 28. I'll grab it right here, John. I got it. Okay, here you go. It's right here. So, wait. Now look, I'm gonna have to move it around for people at my my side of the room to see it a little bit. But um, let's look there. Baptism and Lord's Supper. This is chapter 28. Baptism and Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institutions appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, to be continued in His church and to the end of the world. These holy appointments are to be administered only by those who are qualified and called to administer them according to the commission of Christ. So, here's what I want to do. We'll, we'll come back to that in a little bit. But what, what do they mean by positive and sovereign institution? Right? Did you guys notice that in the first sentence? Baptism and Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution. The reason I'm going here is because these guys define them well. <coughs> What do they mean, positive and sovereign institution? Anybody know? You ever heard those terms? Would, would positive mean as in and something that you do, like commission, as in some, rather than passive obedience, active obedience? Kind of no, thing? but it's a good try. It's yeah. a good try. All right, so yeah. what, what, let me, let's deal with sovereign first. What do we mean by sovereign? Sovereign. Self-governing? Institution. Well, yeah, so it's, it's God's government. In other words, God has given it. Okay, so God is the sovereign. He's instituted this sovereignly. There are chairs over here, too, if you, if you would. But he's instituted this sovereignly. You guys follow me on that? Okay? All right. <coughs> the second thing it says is positive. Now, positive is opposed. Have you guys ever heard of positive law? You ever heard of that? There's natural law and positive law. You ever heard of those categories? We don't talk about those too much anymore. Um, but positive law as opposed to natural law, it, what they mean by that is specially revealed. Okay, so natural law is something we all know, right? You guys follow me on that? Like, we know in natural law, it's not right to murder a person. We know that. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, it doesn't matter. Whether you're an atheist, you still... Follow the natural law in the sense that you don't, it's, not, it's wrong to murder. You guys follow me on that? Okay, that's natural law. It's something we, we hold these truths to be self-evident. You guys know what I'm getting at here? Those are natural laws that, that God created us and gave us the, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Natural law. That's what they're appealing to. You guys follow me? Okay. Uh, a positive institution as opposed to a natural institution is... It's something that's specially revealed. It's not part of natural law. And so what they're saying is, is that you're never going to look in the universe, the heavens, or, the, or what's imprinted on the heart of man, and find baptism in the Lord's Supper. Do you follow up that? 
sovereignly administered or but it's or excuse me sovereignly given or instituted but it's also instituted not only sovereignly but but positively in other words the lord revealed it to us specially where did he reveal it to us specially in the bible right now you can say well technically it was revealed when jesus was walking around on earth yes that's true it was revealed specially in the in the life of christ on earth where he instituted he's instituting baptism well first john the baptist but christ carrying it over and then um, and then where? In the Lord's Supper, right? Where Jesus gets together with the disciples and says, you're going to continue to do this. He's positively instituted. But the only way we know about that is from the Bible. You guys follow me on that? Okay. So that's what they mean by sovereign and positive institution. The, one of the things they say, though, that's interesting is, in the second paragraph of chapter 28, these holy appointments are to be administered only by those who are qualified and called to administer them according to the commission of Christ. So, so what they're saying is, not everyone can baptize and administer the Lord's Supper. Did you guys just hear that? Now, is that is that a normal stance to take in our sort of evangelical subculture? No, it really isn't. What, what's the stance that's generally out there now? Anybody know? Anybody can baptize anybody. Anybody can baptize anybody. You know, grandma can baptize in the bathtub at home. <laughs> right? Right? It, does, it doesn't matter. I mean, anybody can baptize anybody. Anybody can administer the Lord's Supper. I mean, all we need, all we need is some Doritos and some Pepsi. We get together and sort of pass it around. Doesn't even matter what the elements are. I mean, this is what we've essentially. I, I say that because I know of a youth pastor who's actually doing that. Um, you know, he and the students would be somewhere and they get Doritos and, Lord, and Pepsi and they have the Lord's Supper. You'd say. Um, so there's there's a whole bunch of oddity about that, but you you. The sort of Doritos are unleavened, but the, um, <laughs> that is true. But um, yeah, yeah. Um, because largely evangelicals have gone to grape juice, um, we don't see any importance in the wine anymore, um, which is a whole other issue. Um, I don't have time to unwind today. But can anyone baptize and administer the Lord's Supper? The original Baptists, the original Presbyterians. The original Congregationalists all said no. Only, only ordained ministers can do that. That's what they would argue. What's interesting is today we've slipped into the situation where we say, yeah, well, everybody can do it. Um, but originally, all the Protestants pretty universally were saying, no, you can't. You can't, other than the Anabaptists, who were pretty anti-institutional. Um, so so what did they, where did they base that on then? How do they argue that only... Sort of these ordained ministers of the word can offer, bat or can baptize and do the Lord's Supper. It's not because they're caught up in the priesthood, because they're specifically repudiating the priests, okay? Expressly repudiating the priests. They believe in a priesthood of all believers, so why do they continue to hold it just to pastors slash ordained ministers? When they would say ordained deacons or elders, <clears throat> but they had to have some kind of ordination. Why, why would they hold to that? Anybody, any guesses? Well, they're appealing here in the confession anyway to 1 Corinthians 4.1 and Matthew 28. So that's, they're at least trying to throw some scripture there. To, to they appeal to where? I'm sorry, they, like a Matthew 28.19 and then 1 Corinthians 4.1. I see yeah. the part about being the stewards of the mysteries of God. Yeah, yeah. So 
So I, I want to look at some of these texts and just get a look at them. Let's start with Luke 12. Um, I'm I'm sorry. That's that's not where I wanted to go. I, I let let let's. I want to go first to Matthew 28. I'm sorry. Let's go to Matthew 28 first because this is the one that makes us think. The way we read, we tend to read Matthew 28, um, tends to put us all toward baptism. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Well, there he is, talking to his disciples, telling them to baptize, so clearly everybody can baptize. Right? I mean, that's the first, that's how we read that. Well, who's the, verse 18, Jesus came and said to them. Who was them? Look at verse 16. The 11 disciples. Who's not included there? Other disciples. Other disciples. He's just speaking to them. Judas is definitely not included there. <laughs> but, but they, yeah, because they've gone down to 12. But who do they end up adding to the, these, the, this group of 11? Matthias, and then eventually Paul, right? But they're both added specifically, and these guys are seen as different than the other disciples, aren't they? Um, and so they have this different role that, that you see happening with them. Um, so so the question becomes, well, isn't the Great Commission for everybody? Yes. But who's it given to first and primarily? The apostles. And then from them to the elders. I know we want to immediately universalize the Great Commission and make it just the responsibility of of every believer, because we want to read them and you and all that. We just want to read ourselves right into every passage. But we have to stop with the passage and ask the question, who is this first being spoken to? What is the context? How are these guys different than other guys? You guys follow me on that? What's interesting is, even look at Acts chapter 6, when they start to um, minister and have a division of labor. I mean, you see that some... If, I mean, obviously right off in Acts chapter, well, you know what, stop at Acts chapter 2 on the way to Acts 6 if you're on your way there. Let me show you what I mean by this. Verse 42, here's the first church, they're baptized, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's interesting, there's... There's a, there's a distinction between the apostles and everyone else here, isn't there? Okay, Why we call the, the apostles the foundation of the church? They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Uh, there's some distinction here in office. They have an office that not everybody else has. You guys follow me on that? Uh, now, is the apostolic office still around? No. But what, what's the... When, if you went through the elders' stuff with us, that's been passed essentially to the elders. They're not apostles. But that, that's the, the New Testament parallel. Their job is to teach the apostles' doctrine. You guys follow me on that? Not to make up new apostolic doctrine, but to teach what the apostles left. But if you go forward to Acts chapter 6, you'll start to see this division of labor. We looked at this when we looked at deacons, but I want you to stop and consider what this text says. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, these are... Um, 
Jews that are, are Greek-speaking. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So they were distributing food daily, and, and they, they had widows who needed to be cared for, um, and they were doing the distribution. And there's a problem because the Hellenist widows weren't getting as much. And the 12, now here the apostles are again, they, there's 12 now because they've added Matthias. If you remember in chapter 1 of Acts, they added Matthias. So the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, you should all just serve the tables yourselves as a group. That isn't what happens next, right? We're all part of the priesthood of all believers. We're all members of the body. You should all serve the tables. That isn't what they say, is it? It's interesting. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And when they and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, etc., etc. Verse 6, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, what comes out of that that's quite interesting, as you run through the, the rest of Acts, is every time people are baptized, who's present? The apostles. The apostles aren't every time. There are some times when the apostles aren't. Can you think of one? Philip. Philip. Now, now, Philip had hands laid on him in Acts 6, 6, right? He was ordained. That's what ordination is. When you set apart a man, a godly man, you pray and lay hands on them, that's ordination in, in the New Testament church. That's how they ordained. So Philip was ordained, though he wasn't an apostle, but he, he did baptize. But every time you see baptisms, you see the apostles and or one of these kind of men present. You guys follow me on that? What, what, what's the case I'm making there? I'm not making the case that, that that's an absolute command in the sense that it says nobody is to administer the sacraments except the ordained elders and deacons. What I am saying, however, is that's the pattern we see over and over again in Scripture. So the priesthood of all believers didn't erase all distinctions. You guys follow me on that? The Protestants read these passages. What I'm trying to give you is a historical understanding of the Protestants saw this. The Protestants read these passages and said, yes, we have a priesthood of all believers. So no, we don't need to go to a priest, a Roman Catholic priest, who brings absolution for our sins for us. You guys follow me on that? We don't need to do that because as a priesthood of all believers, we all stand before God, and our one mediator, our great high priest, is Jesus. We don't need any other great high priest. So we can all go before him and pray to him knowing that he is our mediator. You follow me on that? So the Protestants saw that, and so therefore they threw away the priesthood and said, um, other than the Anglicans, but that's a different issue we're not going to get into today. They te- the, the Anglicans don't quite mean by priest, or don't mean by priest what the Roman Catholics mean by it. But the point is, is that you have, they, they saw that pattern, and they said, we have a priesthood of all believers. But when the Protestants taught a priesthood of all believers, they did not run down this road of saying, because there's a priesthood of all believers, there's a removal of all distinctions. There aren't any, really there's a flattening, there's no offices that anybody's really holding, and so everybody is free to do whatever. You guys follow me on that? They actually said, well, we have evangelists, and we have pastor teachers, um, slash elders, and then we have deacons. And so we lay hands on these men, and they are the main people responsible for these works. 
how this work? And so almost all the Protestant bodies said only the elders, deacons that are ordained could administer the Lord's Supper, could baptize. The Anabaptists, however, were a group that said, with the priesthood of all believers, that we, we want to erase all these distinctions, and so sort of anybody can do it. Now, the Anabaptists are a part of the Radical Reformation. So if the Magisterial Reformation um, carried over to the London Baptists, carried over to the um, Savoy Declaration, which is the Congregationalists, carried over to the Presbyterians, the Magisterial Reformation, they held to this kind of, yes, we have a priesthood of all believers, but there's still a distinction in office and who can do these administrative sacraments. And then you had the Anabaptist movement, which came and swept in Radical Reformation, carried over with the Mennonite Brethren, the Mennonites, you guys know these groups, um, that said, no, no, we don't, we don't need to have priesthood all believers. There's no distinctions, essentially. And you, you guys follow me historically, what's happened here, and how they see this te these texts differently? All right? Um, and part of the reason that I think that the, the London Baptists or the Presbyterians or etc. are right about this issue is, is because you always see this um, communal context in which these things are happening. I mean, there are extreme circumstances in which you don't see a communal context, like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. But even in his case, you always see the pattern of these guys being men who are ordained, who are doing this. And the question becomes, um, if anybody... So here's, here's, here's an issue. If anybody can administer the Lord's Supper and baptism, right, particularly the Lord's Supper... Anybody can administer that, then what meaning can excommunication possibly have? I don't need anybody to administer it to me. I can take it myself. Because excommunication, <coughs> what is excommunication? It's being removed from what? Communion. Communion with the church, which is actually referencing first and foremost the Lord's table. So if I can just administer it to myself or my family, what? What meaning does excommunication ever have? Do you guys follow me on that? Um, and so that's that's part of where you go. The other thing is is that there's a sense in which in Titus 1.7 that, that this elder is God's steward. Steward of what? That's where you, they tie to 1 Corinthians 4. Josh, which you referenced earlier. Steward of the mystery of the Gospels. Not everybody in the church in the same sense is a steward of the mystery of the Gospels. You see a distinction between people. Do you follow me on that? Um, and so that's, that's where they go. Now, um, elders are stewards of the word for the local church, or deacons, they, those who are ordained, and their job is to administer these to the local church, um, <clears throat> the word and sacrament, if you will. Um, there's no small amount of disagreement over that, by the way, in contemporary evangelicalism. What I'm saying for contemporary evangelicalism is a very foreign concept. Because, Anna, because America is basically an Anabaptist country. You guys know what I mean by that? Anabaptists is sort of one today. We, we don't have any distinctions really in that regard anymore. Um, so, are there any questions about that? When you say America, I'm sorry. When you say that America is primarily Anabaptist, are you talking about in general those who just profess some sort of Christianity? Or are you talking more the evangelical? Um, that's a great question. What I mean is, is that the Reformed <coughs> Lutherans, so if you have the, the Reformed and the Lutherans, well, let me back up. You guys understand that Anabaptists aren't Protestants, right? 
What? Okay. In America, we've sort of blurred all those lines. Because the American government, especially when they started giving out dog tags, basically asked, are you Eastern Orthodox, Jewish, Roman Catholic, Protestant? There wasn't a label for Anabaptist. Okay? But historically, you go back to the 1560s, when the Anabaptists wrote their first confessional statement, they actually said, we are not, in fact, denounced both Roman Catholics and Protestants. They considered Roman Catholics and Protestants both to be a problem. You follow me on that? Okay. The Anabaptists denied sola scriptura, other, in other words, the doctrine of scripture alone. That has largely won the day in America. Because the Anabaptists said, no, we have the Bible and private revelations of the Holy Spirit. Now, how many people do you know, I mean, how many would you say that the majority of American evangelicals believe that they both have the Bible and private revelations of the Holy Spirit. Is that not true? The majority of Americans tend to hold to that. That's a, that, that originates, at least in the modern era, with the Anabaptists. Not the Charismatics. The Charismatics just put that on steroids a little bit, okay? So it doesn't originate with them, all right? They, they denied sola fide, or justification by faith alone. The Anabaptists did. Um, in fact, they even denied... Um, the full humanity of Christ. They said he had a he heavenly flesh. He wasn't fully human. The Protestants considered them heretics. In fact, Luther and Calvin considered the Anabaptists to be worse than the Roman Catholics. Like, if you had to choose, go Roman Catholic. Now, what's interesting is now you're in a different era where everything's kind of become this giant theological mutt in America where all these denominations, if you will, have sort of just kind of combined into this sort of third thing. What, you guys know what I'm talking about? Where you could walk into, if you walked into an Anabaptist church in America, they wouldn't likely deny justification by faith alone. I don't think you could walk into a Mennonite Brethren church and, and hear the pastor say, no, 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 you're not justified by faith alone. You've you got to add works to it. I don't, I don't know any Anabaptists that say that now. I mean, I'm sure they're out there, but I don't know them. Do, do you guys follow me on that? That's So you wouldn't find that. Um, largely because there's been this sort of intermixing in American church history where you've created sort of um, almost this almost this kind of amorphous thing we call American evangelicalism. It's hard to identify what tradition anybody's from. Some people say, well, I'm a Baptist, okay? And some people say, well, I'm not a Baptist. And by the way, both of them are Baptists because they both baptize only believers, Historically, you guys follow me on that? Um, and some of them are, and one of them might be an Anabaptist and one of them might be a Baptist, and they don't even know the distinction between those two things. Um, an Anabaptist from a theological tradition is different than a Baptist theologically. You guys follow me on that? And, and, and most people don't even know that because we've hybrid everything at this point. Um, and so you have, and so the Anabaptists have won the day. So basically, any anti authority, anti institutional, um, almost anti-communal form has won the day. It doesn't require a community. It doesn't require any leadership. We can all do it ourselves at home, in our bathtub, around our table with some wine and some bread. We can take care of this. It doesn't require... you guys follow me on that? So we've slid into that direction. I think that's an error in the American Evangelical Church. I personally think we've slid into error on that. We've essentially divorced any of the ordinances Christ gave to the church from any sense of these should be administered by leaders in the church who are ordained, set apart for that purpose, stewarding the gospel. This this should be or should be administered in a corporate context. 
um, to a very kind of free will, you know, willy nilly, everybody take it whenever they want kind of a thing. And and we wonder why it's hard to do any kind of church discipline. Now, there's sort of a third thing that's a, another new expression of that, like where Adam's church, where he's from. Did you when you Adam when you guys did communion in a crowded house, you did it in your home groups. We right. Well, they're not had the, the the home group had a much was much more a part of the life of the church, so it wouldn't be called a small group. Okay. Um, so yes, the, the they had leaders. Some all of the all of those gospel communities were overseen by elders, not necessarily in the in the room when communion was administered. But we didn't do communion in um, in the, the church service on a Sunday morning because of the, the strong belief that it should be part of the meal. So yeah, that, yeah. But so. Yes, it wasn't technically an elder was overseen, so it's a little bit more in the Anabaptist direction. But not quite. But there's order to it, and yeah, that's yeah. the key, I think. Is that yeah, yeah, and that's that's a distinction. So I, I give Steve a hard time that he's basically an Anabaptist, but in fairness, it, that's Adam's old pastor, in fairness, he's really not, so he's kind of got this morphed kind of view of it um, that would be distinct from the way the early the Reformers would see it, but would be also distinct from the way the Anabaptists saw it. You guys follow me on that? Um, and so you, you it, it, anyway, that's, I, I don't want to get all everybody's mind all muddied by all these historical strands. The difficulty we have in America is because we're this huge melting pot in every regard, it's, it's hard to even trace where these thoughts come from anymore. You guys understand what I'm saying? How they all come together. All right, um, let's move on to the... You had a couple of questions. Keith, did you have one? Yeah. Um, from one of our previous classes, one of the recent ones, you mentioned about the uh, the apostles keeping a close record and they're annotating the members of the church, the people that were that were coming in. Based on that, and you're, you're talking about church discipline and communion and how that works together, is how would that look, being that they did keep a really good record of who was in the number... If somebody was excommunicated, it, it, it meant something to excommunion. Because nowadays, if you get excommunicated, you just go to another church and take communion. Drive across town, yeah. Yeah, get, they don't have a list of us. You know what I mean? So, so how does that look in the first century church based on what we're talking about? Well, in the first century, obviously, they didn't have... Um, they might. We could argue that they may have had multiple house churches... But there was an oversight. There was a there was an oversight that was all united together. So I would say they probably they probably in a form from a perspective of what their form was like. Their form was probably a little bit more like what Adam experienced in the crowded house, which is they're they're spread through house churches, but then they have an elder oversight over all the house churches. So they're all united that way. But was there a general awareness of? Oh yeah, everybody who was in those houses. Oh yeah, they could. You could name who's inside and who's outside, even from a different house. Correct. Okay, because the old elder oversight was all together. Right. And they would meet regularly. Oh, the, daily. Uh, the elders. I don't know how often they met, but the church met daily. Okay. Incidentally, that that's not an easy society to meet daily in. Um, just just so we're clear, when you live in, go go be a farmer sometime and ask the question. Do I have a lot of free time to meet daily? Okay, try to live that way and be a farmer without the machines farmers have, and without and and the housewife without the machines 
housewives have and without grocery stores and try living that way and say, do I have a whole bunch of free time to meet daily? Right? I know we all think, well, back then, they had so much free time. No. No. Back now, we actually probably have the most free time in, the history, in, in human history. We probably have more free time than any human being in human history. But it is so absorbed with entertainment. Well, Facebook has consumed most of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, social media is absorbing a lot of it now. But it's absorbed with entertainment in general. That we, we actually say we don't have much free time. They met daily. Anyway, I'm not even going to get into that any further. Well, I wonder if a lot of it was simply they shared a lot of the things. Now, clearly they gathered under right. God's word. But I think that's that's how maybe they pulled it off. Yeah, they shared a whole bunch. Yeah. All right, let's let's look. Did you have another question over here? Was there another one? Yes. I was just going to say, shouldn't we view the church in the same way we view the Trinity? Like that there's roles, like we're all equal, but there's roles. And the, you know, uh, other guys you were talking about who deny that, who deny that there's a, a leadership role in the church are kind of, in a way, denying that there's a role in the Trinity. Well. It's kind of wrong to think of it like that. <coughs> I, d- I don't want to put words in their mouth. Okay. But I think there's 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 a place to make if, if you the way God created us ontologically as to our being reflects His being. So His being is both um, equal and differentiated as to role. You follow that, okay? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we're equal and differentiated as to role in our creation, man and woman. We're t- talking there about complementarianism, which is one of the issues I need to get into in the doctrine of the church. Male-female roles, um, but I think that would carry over as well, Jesse, to yeah. to the idea of you know submit yourselves one to another, and then he drops down and says, "Parents, you know, children submit to parents, wives submit to husbands, slaves submit to masters." In other words, even though we're all equal in Christ, we have different roles. Some are in authority over others. In roles, we all know that. By the way, we all live that every day. We try to avoid it um, in in our thinking, but we know it's true. We all live with authority over us of some kind, whether it's our government or our boss or our parents or our wives or whoever it is. Okay, so all right, <laughs> let's look at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Adam, what what should ideally be and what functionally is are not necessarily always the same. All right, <laughs> um, baptism, chapter twenty nine of the confession. They get into baptism and they want to break that down. And I, I'm, I'm walking the confession because they so clearly spell this out. Um, I'll see if I can put that up there while we're, um, in case you don't have it. But, um, okay, so if you look here, baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus. Uh, sorry, Christ. That's a weird pause. Don't do that. Uh, Jesus Christ to be to the person who was baptized a sign of his fellowship with Christ in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into Christ, of his remission of a remission of sins, and of that person's giving up of himself to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. Okay, so they, they've, they've identified this. What I want to do is sort of break that down. Um, and, and here's what I want to get. <coughs> Baptism really communicates... The verbal content of the gospel in nonverbal form, doesn't it? Communicates the verbal content of the gospel in a nonverbal form. Baptism does. And um, well, that's why the Reformers, and I think rightly always called the Protestants, always called uh, baptism and Lord's Supper, they called them a visible word. Right? A visible word. 
So you have the written word that we preach and you hear, right? So this is an auditory word. And they would call baptism and the Lord's Supper a visible word. In other words, the gospel is not being communicated to you through baptism and the Lord's Supper by preaching now. The gospel is being communicated to you by picture. You guys follow that? So if I'm preaching and you're hearing it, then I baptize, now you're seeing it. Okay. If I'm preaching, you're hearing it, and then we, then we participate in the Lord's Supper, now you're seeing it. And so people have asked me in the past, especially when we first started Sovereign Grace, are you going to have visuals in the church service? I said, yes. What are they going to be? Are you going to put stuff on the screen or what? Oh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Like, what? I said, yeah, we're going to have visuals every week in the church service. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the visuals we're going to have. And say, what about other visuals? Nope. Why not? Because these visuals are the ones Jesus gave us, and so I'm just going to give these. Let's get good at those, and then we can worry about the other things, right? So let's just focus on that for now. And people would look at me like, what in the world are you talking about? You are a nut. <laughs> yeah, that, the, the idea is, is that we have, we have, as a church, so demeaned the visuals of baptism and the Lord's Supper that we've, we've gone to upgrading other kinds of visuals almost in their place. You guys follow me on that? And so I don't want to demean those. I want to hold them up as the visuals Jesus gave us, if you will. They're, they're a, a visible word. So what are the verbal promises or content of the gospel that we read in baptism then? When we see baptism, what are the verbal promises or content of the gospel we see in baptism? Well, the first one is union with Christ. So look at Romans chapter 6, if you will. Romans chapter 6. Um, can somebody read verses 3 through uh, three through 5? Actually, just we'll take 1 through 5. Can somebody read that? And Colossians 2.12, can somebody take that? Really, uh, I think I want to do 11 and 12 in Colossians. I'll do that one. I'll take Romans. You, you'll take Romans 6, 1 through 5. Thanks, Rob. And can somebody else get Galatians 3.27? We want to read that for me? I'll do it. Okay. Um, Rob, do you want to get Romans 6, 1 through 5? Let me, let me give you the context of Romans 6 here first. He's just come off of saying that um, where Christ, wherever grace abounds, he's been talking about justification for almost three chapters. And he's saying, listen, wherever grace abounds, or sin abounds, wherever sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, right? Wherever sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So he, he says that, and then Paul goes in Romans 6. He knows his interlocutor, the people who are hearing his presentation, are going to have an immediate objection. And he, he knows they're going to have an immediate objection, so he wants to answer their objection. So with that said, um, go ahead, Rob. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, uh, this is an incredibly powerful passage. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones said he... he, he talked about avoiding preaching Romans until he understood this passage um, because he saw it as such an important passage in the, in, in the midst of the book of Romans. Um, and I don't have time to unwind all of it. But, but here's the basic thing that's going on here. 
Paul's declared justification, how free the grace of God is in justification. And he knows the immediate question is, well, if it's that free, and if it covers all sin, and, and wherever my sin is abounding, grace is abounding all the more, then why not sin more? Right, so that grace could abound more. He knows that's going to be an objection. You guys have heard this similar kind of objection when you're talking about the freeness of grace and people are saying, well, what? What's the objection? Anybody? Well, if that's true, then what's the motivation to even obey? Right? Isn't our people just going to run off into sin? Anybody ever heard that before? Okay. Paul's answer isn't the motivation to obey is you might lose your salvation. It's not his answer. What's his answer? You've been baptized. What? Now, that's a weird thing to say, isn't it? You've been baptized, but he wants to define your baptism for you. But he says, here's why you've been baptized. Now, now most of us, when we're sitting around at the table with somebody, and they say, I just don't understand why I should continue. I mean, if, if God has forgiven me my sins, why I need to even keep the law? And the answer is, because you've been baptized. They look at you like, what are you talking about? Because I've been baptized. What does it have to do with anything? You guys follow me on that? Um, but the question is, how does he define baptism here? When he's talking about baptism, he's not just talking about water. He's tying that water baptism to something specific, which is what? Death and life. Death and resurrection. Spiritual life, right? He's tying it to this union with Christ. You've been crucified with him and raised with him. When he says you've been crucified with him, by the way, that's past tense. At the cross, your baptism pictures the fact that at the cross... You were crucified in time. You were crucified then. Now, it's applied to you now, but it actually your crucifixion, your death to sin, occurred when Jesus was on the cross. Now you recognize the application of that at your baptism. And you say, well, wait a minute. It's not because the water saves you, but the water baptism is generally at this time is immediately following this profession of faith. I believe and I'm baptized. And so it's picturing my death and resurrection with Christ, my crucifixion and resurrection with Christ, my union with him. You guys follow me on that? And baptism, incidentally, is a naming ceremony, if you will. So you're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're baptized in the name of Jesus. When you were all born, what was the first thing your parents gave you? A name. You're born, you're given a name. You're born, you're given a name, and you grow up, and you grow up, and you realize, Chris, oh, they're talking to me. That's my name. That's me. I'm, I'm that person. Chad, I'm that person. Adam, I'm that. That's me. They're talking about me. Well, at, what Paul's saying is, listen, don't you realize you've been given a new name? You're, you're Christ's now. You've been renamed. You're born again in your baptism ceremony. You're born again, not through the water, but you're born again and you're baptized and you're renamed. You're, you now are under the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Your life is not your own. Yes, sir. What was the context of baptism in that culture or history? Because they were doing it before all this. So they were doing it as a kind of cleansing. In the Old Testament, they had baptism um, as a kind of cleansing. Um, John the Baptist, obviously, obviously, is the Old Testament prophet, brings it as a um, a cleansing ceremony for the uh, that was really tied to repentance of sins. So you repent in preparation for the coming Messiah and, and, and be cleansed. So it was really a cleansing ceremony. Um, and, and uh, if you will, a kind of repentance um, or a sign of repentance. 
which I, which I would argue it still is uh, that, but I'm just not at that point yet, right? But that that's that's a great question. Um, so when it comes along, it actually carries more meaning in Christ than it did prior to Him. You follow me on that? Um, all right. So uh, let's look at this. What uh, t- somewhat what you're talking about is this remission of sins. Look at Acts. Uh, well, actually, somebody's reading Galatians three twenty-seven. I'm going to save Colossians two um, until my third point. So, who's reading Galatians three twenty-seven? For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Okay, so you notice that you're baptized into Him and you put on Him, and so baptism. Now, mind you, spiritual baptism and water baptism are two separate things, but one pictures the other. You guys follow me on that? And so the, the apostles tend to talk about them like they're the same event. Okay? Because you would basically be born again, repent of your sins, and go in the water. It's essentially how it happens. You guys follow me on that? All right. Um, but it has to do with this union with Christ. You've been clothed with him. You've been reuni- re- renamed under his name. Your life is no longer your own. It belongs to Christ. That's God's grace to you. In other words, what he's saying is, if you think that justification, justification makes you want to sin, you have no idea how great grace is. You, you, you've, just, you've, you've just diminished how good it is. All right, so let's look at um, Acts 2.38. Can somebody take that? And then um, anybody want to read Ephesians 1.7? John, can you yeah. get that one? Who's got Acts 2.38? The apostles of Peter's been preaching. People have been hearing it. He's been telling them, you're going to be judged for your rejection of Jesus. Um, it goes over the fact that Jesus is resurrected. They get cut to the heart. What shall we? What must we do to be saved? Kind of the question, right? They're cut to the heart. What do we do now? And what's in Acts 2.38 comes along. What does it say? Who's got that one? Adam, go ahead. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Did you hear that? And you got to hear it in uh, British. English. <laughs> English. Yeah. I'm going okay, to pay Adam to read the Bible to me. <laughs> Record it and I can listen to it. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Just have him do a conference call over the phones of the church. Right. Okay. So anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just sounds a little bit more historic. All right, but... <laughs> Notice that, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. So baptism is being tied to the remission of sins. Okay, And incidentally, Jeff, to answer your question earlier, to repentance. Because that's what John the Baptist is saying, repent and be baptized, right? For the forgiveness of your sins. So these things are being tied together. So there is correlation between John, John baptism, if you will, and Jesus' baptism. It's just that one is more full than the other. Right? And, okay. Um, you have. Is this this is like where we get pull out of context that salvation is tied to baptism? Yeah. Well, here in First Peter uh, four, they'll say that that's a place where salvation is tied to baptism. Which salvation is tied to baptism? Baptism. It is. Just not. The salvation, justification is not. Um, the, the baptism pictures salvation, right? It's a sign and seal, if you will, of salvation. But it doesn't um, 
It doesn't justify you. It doesn't get you forgiveness of sins and declared righteous. You follow me on that? Okay. We, we have to be careful how we use the word salvation sure. and justification. Because salvation can, incorporates both your justification and your sanctification, your growth, and your final glorification. The word salvation includes all of that. So I can say, I'm saved. And I can say, I'm being saved. And I can say, I will be saved. The New Testament uses all three of those tenses because it's talking about justification, you're forgiven, declared righteous, sanctification, you're growing in holiness, and glorification, the process will be completed. You guys follow me on that? Okay, so, so yes, it's tied to salvation, so they rightly tie baptism to salvation. They wrongly tie it to justification. Now, they don't wrongly tie justification if they mean by that baptism pictures justification or the remission of sins. That's true, it does. But if they mean by that the water somehow brings, has some kind of magical property that brings that, that that's where they, they commit an error. You follow, you follow that? Okay. All right. As if it's the water itself that does it. Which, by the way, even though they appeal to 1 Peter 4, 1 Peter 4 actually clears that up right in the verse. Um, so, um, all right. Who, who, John, did you have Ephesians 1 7? Yeah. Um, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Yeah. I pull that out because I, I want you to understand union with Christ brings us the forgiveness of our trespasses. Baptism just pictures it. That's why I'm comboing that with Acts 2.38. You can follow me on that? Okay, so we can get into that more some other time. But third thing it pictures. So it pictures union with Christ, remission of sins, moral pur purification of the heart. Now, and when I say remission of sins, I also mean tied to repentance. Okay, you guys follow me on that? Okay, so it pictures remission of sins, that, that kind of remission of sins, but it also pictures your repentance. That's why I pulled out Acts 2.38. All right, moral, moral purification of the heart, it pictures, or what we call regeneration, being born again, right? You have a new heart. Um, Colossians 2, 11 um, through, well, let's just go all the way through uh, 12, that's fine. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Uh, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And notice that in him, in Christ, there's there's a union with Christ language. By the way, I'll tell you, if you go read Paul, his most repeat, repeated phrase is in Christ, in him, in him. Union with Christ is central to Paul's doctrine. Okay, um, Because all the benefits, justification, sanctification, glorification, all the benefits we have come from being united to Christ through faith. Just follow me on that? Every single one. Okay. Um, so, in him you were circumcised. Now, what does he mean you were circumcised? Because he's not talking about the cutting off of the foreskin on your penis. It's not what he's referring to here. Okay. So, in him you were, also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of flesh. You hear that circumcision? putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, what he's talking about is the regeneration of your heart. In the Old Testament, they would be circumcised in the foreskin of their penis, and then what would God tell them? Now circumcise your hearts. Now here's a question. Here's a command. Circumcise your hearts. Who can keep that? None of us. 
Nobody, right? Nobody can circumcise their own heart. Nobody can cut off, if you will, give themselves a new heart, okay? So that's, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. They were commanded to do it, just like we're commanded to believe, and you can't do that on your own. It's a gift, but it's still commanded. You actually, Paul sees it such a command in Romans 10, he says, not all have obeyed the gospel. Obeyed the gospel? We don't usually think about the, go the gospel in obedience categories. But there is a command. What's the command? Repent and believe the gospel. Those are commands. You follow me on that? They're commands we can't keep. Just like we can't keep the command of circumcise your heart. Unless the Holy Spirit does that work. And so here he's talking about the Holy Spirit circumcising their heart. And Christ actually, the Spirit of Christ is actually the one circumcising their heart. So Christ is circumcising your heart, um, regenerating you. And it's pictured what? Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You guys follow me on that? So the circumcision of the heart or the regeneration of the heart is also pictured at baptism. So at baptism, we have union with Christ, this sort of naming ceremony. We have remission of sins, the picture of repentance, the moral purification of the heart. So that's like four things I've told you so far, right? The baptism pictures. Union with Christ, remission of sins, repentance, moral purification of the heart. Baptism, baptism pictures all four of those things. One more. You guys ready? Salvation through judgment. It pictures that you've been saved through judgment. What do you mean saved through judgment? All right. Now I want you to stop and think about this. In Genesis 3.15, how does God say he's going to save mankind? Through what? Through her seed doing what? Crushing the head of the serpent. What's that? That's judgment. Satan being judged. Right? And the seed, by the way, of the serpent is not just Satan, but all of his followers. In other words, everyone who's not a Christ follower at the end. Paul tells you, children of the devil. That's why John the Baptist will call those who come out, you brood of vipers. Right? Offspring of serpents. What's John the Baptist clearly referencing there? Right? Okay, you guys follow? He's going back to the fall. You guys understand? And Satan, okay? So, um, there's not just that you're going to, is God going to save us through judging Satan, but he's going to save us through judging all unbelievers. That's the promise. Now, when Noah is, in Noah's day, there's all these unbelievers, how does God save him? Through judgment. He puts them in the ark and floods the world. And he's saved through judgment. <clears throat> you go through. What about the Israelites? They go through the Red Sea and what happens? What? God closes the Red Sea on the Egyptians. What's interesting is the Egyptians are the only one who got wet in that picture. Although Moses calls that the baptism of... I mean, Paul calls that the baptism of Moses in 1 Corinthians 10. Calls the baptism of Moses, but it's specifically the baptism of Moses. Specifically speaking of what? <clears throat> judgment, right? And Israel saved through judgment. You guys follow me on that? Now, let's go to Jesus. <laughs> what happens with Jesus? He dies on a cross. So we're saved through what? Judgment. judgment. The judgment of Christ on the cross. You guys follow that? He's judged on the cross in our place, and we're saved through his judgment. Baptism pictures that salvation through judgment. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4 
I could combo that with 1 Corinthians 10, but I'm not going to for the sake of time. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians or 1 Peter? Oh, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 4. Sorry, thank you, Josh. 1 Peter chapter 4. Look down 1 Peter chapter 4 and uh, look at verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? There's that obedience language with regard to the gospel again. And here we're talking about judgment starting with the household of God, which here he's talking about suffering. He says it begins with us, but carries on to them. And look at verse 18. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? In other words, when judgment happens, if, if you're barely saved, by the way, we, you all essentially are barely <coughs> saved because of Christ, right? Okay? Uh, what becomes of the ungodly sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to the faithful, a faithful creator while doing good. Sorry. That's where I'm talking about judgment there. But I want to jump back now in 1 Peter 3. See that? Look back to 1 Peter 3. Look at verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now look what he says in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Okay, so he's put to death physically, but he's not, but he's made alive, okay? He's talking about death and resurrection. I'm not going to get into all that right now. But look what he goes on to say. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were safe, were brought safely through water. Now, what's he talking about there? I actually think he's talking about the Spirit of Christ proclaiming, the Spirit of Christ who's, who's essentially given, who's resurrected him. Follow me on that? That same Spirit of Christ was proclaiming the gospel through Noah in the days of uh, before the flood, preceding the flood. I think that's what he's referencing here. So some people say, well, didn't Jesus' spirit go and proclaim to the spirits in hell? Ha <laughs> ha, you lost. I don't think so. I think this is actually, and I did a whole sermon on this um, in a First Peter series, so you can go find that online. First Peter 3, I actually did a whole series on this, so you, or a sermon on this, so you can go listen to it. But I think what's happening here is he's saying that Christ in the spirit went, past tense, and proclaimed, past tense, to those spirits who are now in prison. They're now there. They're now in hell. But at the time, they weren't. Because they formally did not obey when God's patience weighed in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So here comes their judgment, and now here comes salvation. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, this is where people get confused, right? Baptism, which corresponds to what? The flood, which wiped, judged all these people, now saves you. Not, but notice this, not as a removal of dirt from the body. Okay? I mean, it just clearly just told you that it's not the water. Okay? But what? But as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ, who's gone to heaven as the right hand of God, angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to, to him. You guys follow that? But here you have baptism being tied to salvation through judgment. That's why I give you this passage. Um, 
that, that, that's a picture. When you go into the water, it's a picture that you've been saved through judgment, the judgment of Christ on the cross. You've been crucified with Christ, which is why Paul can say, I've been crucified with Christ. And yet I live, but not I, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I live, I live by what? Faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you understand what Paul see, how Paul sees baptism? Peter sees baptism, the Bible sees baptism. Is It's this picture that your life belongs to him now, that you've been crucified, that you've been effectively saved through judgment on the cross, united to Christ. Your sins have been remitted. You're repentant. So that's what it pictures. You guys follow that? Any questions about that? How do you um, respond to the folks like in the Restoration Movement who kind of push for baptismal regeneration with these kind of texts? Like folks, is, folks in the Disciples of Christ, Churches of Christ, Christian Church denomination. You just walk through all these passages and demonstrate that it's, it's clearly not a removal of dirt from the body. Mm -hmm. He says that. It's not the water. It's the appeal to God for a good conscience. It's this turning to him. And baptism pictures that, for sure. They would uh, argue it, that, what's that? They would argue that the appeal to God for a good conscience is the, in the baptism, so if you're not baptized, you're not. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you want to hear my, my response to that, look up my sermon on baptism from Romans. Um, I think when I was preaching in Romans 6, I, I came to the question of baptism and deal with that. I, I don't have enough time to deal with it this morning. I but I spend probably 45 or 50 minutes just on... What do you do with Acts 2.38? What do you do with 1 Peter 4? How do you answer the question of baptism? The first thing you have to come to is you're justified by faith alone. Paul's clear about that, but then he talks about baptism as well. And so then the question is, how are you harmonizing various statements in Scripture so you have one complete picture and not opposing pictures? You can follow me on that? So you, Because somehow these all come together. They don't oppose each other. And so... Um, <clears throat> The question is, how, how do they come together? They, I don't think they come together through baptismal regeneration. But I have to do a whole class on the fact that bat, the water doesn't baptize you. To be, to, I mean, mm -hmm. it doesn't regenerate you. Yeah. Sorry, thank you. The water doesn't regenerate you. Joel picked it up. All right, so <laughs> um, let, let, me, let me deal with the proper subjects of baptism. With uh, No, oh, there's no way I'm going to get to that. All right, so and, any other questions? Any other questions about that? Yes, John. What do you do with, I mean, people love to go to the thief on the cross. What do you do with that? <clears throat> what do you mean, what do I do with it? Well, as, as a way out of all those kind of things. As a, as a way out of baptism? Yeah. You know, any, any, anything that proceeds. Well, I think, I think the thief on the cross can be used in a number of ways. One, clearly it, does, you don't re, it doesn't require to be baptized to be saved i.e. the thief on the cross. However, with that said, I'm that's sure he would have liked to have been. I'm sure he would have liked to have been, as opposed <laughs> to hanging there. Right? <laughs> that's right. There, you, you don't want to make, you don't want to build doctrine, you don't want to build doctrine off of exceptional circumstances. And this is one of the things you want to be careful about doing. Uh, it, it's like building a doctrine off of um, when Jesus resurrects in Matthew, and it talks about Matthew, Jesus resurrects, and all these people come out of their tombs and walk around Jerusalem. You know, what in the world is going on there? Because that isn't the general resurrection of the dead. So what is that? You know, I've read every commentator and theologian on that. 
And at the end of the day, they all say, we're just not quite sure. We just don't quite know. It just people. What it is is people got up out of their tombs and walked around the city. That's what it is. But, but, but how does that fit in our doctrine of the resurrection, that the resurrection doesn't happen until the second coming? And how does that fit? Well, you know, in other words, there are these extraordinary exceptional circumstances. You want to be careful not to build whole doctrines around. People do it, though. They build doctrines around it, this. Again, this is how you do systematic theology, and to some extent comes into your hermeneutic. How do you read the Bible? You cannot build whole doctrines around extraordinary circumstances or, or sort of things that you just kind of rip out of their context and want to build. Now, it has to at least inform your doctrine that you're building. <clears throat> it touches on it. So the thief on the cross definitely needs to inform your doctrine of baptism. It ought to inform it in that it doesn't require you to go in the water for your heart to be regenerated, clearly. However, while that's an extraordinary circumstance that tells us it doesn't require it, it doesn't overturn the fact that baptism is normatively commanded in the Christian life. It's commanded in the Christian life. It's normative to the Christian life. You guys follow me on that? So it's got to inform it, but it can't, it can't, you can't build a whole doctrine off of it. And people get really crazy with this. I heard a local pastor recently say that that. Jesus was walking on the water, and Peter um, saw him and said, a ghost. And then Peter got in the boat, and Jesus didn't say, didn't rebuke him for believing in ghosts, so clearly Jesus and the disciples all believed in ghosts. That was his conclusion. And I'm thinking to myself, first of all, he didn't have to rebuke him for believing in ghosts, because when he got in the boat and he saw that it was physically him, he knew, oh, it's not a ghost. Okay, so... You didn't have to have a whole rebuke session about, you know, now, listen, before I calm the storm, let me let you know, ghosts don't exist. Right, okay, and let me explain to you the, the theology of ghosts. All right, <clears throat> he's standing right there. You just follow me on that? It's, you just can't go and build theology that way. You have to be very careful. The same thing with Acts. People love to build the whole theologies out of the book of Acts. You know, um, well, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch outside the community of the church. <clears throat> Therefore, it doesn't really matter where baptism happens. Wait a minute. While I would not say it's required that baptism always happen within the community of the church, I will tell you that it's normative that it does. You guys follow me on that? You only see it happening outside the community of the church in exceptional circumstances. An exceptional circumstance, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So can baptism happen outside the context of the community of the church? Yes. Should it normatively happen in that way? No. You guys follow me on that? Um, if you want to take Philip too far, he also immediately teleported right after that incident. <laughs> yeah. Now, I don't think Every time we baptize, <laughs> yeah. we're going yeah. somewhere. So if you can pull off the teleportation, then go ahead and baptize some guy out by yourself somewhere. Okay? <laughs> Just make sure you do them both. All right, you guys, you guys follow me on that? We, we just don't want to just rip these things out of context, out of extraordinary circumstances, build whole doctrines around them. That's just a rule of how you do theology and how you read the Bible, is you just don't build whole doctrines out of extraordinary circumstances. Uh, uh, you know, the extraordinary circumstance of the speaking in tongues that, that accompanied the giving of the Spirit by, from the apostles and Acts. The fact that people want to make that normative where incidentally, nobody in Acts 
ever start speaking in tongues at salvation, ever, except in the presence of apostles. Lots of people in Acts get saved. Lots of people in Acts never speak in tongues. Four instances in which people speak in tongues, and every single one of them, the apostles are laying on hands on people. Every single one. You want to make that normative for the life of the church? No, there's no more apostles. <laughs> there aren't any more apostles. Right? So a lot of guys have understood this, and they've, got, they've taken it to the extra step, and they started a thing called the New Apostolic Reformation. And these guys believe they're apostles akin to the early New Testament apostles. The biggest one of them being Bill Johnson up in uh, Reading at Bethel. He's one of the starters of that movement, the New Apostolic Reformation. So we've got to have apostles if we're going to go giving out this gift, laying on of hands. And Eastern Orthodox had carried that apostolic thing over too, where they called chrismation. You don't receive the Holy Spirit until the, until the, until the priest lays hands on you, so you receive it. Um, and so they've carried that over, that apostolic office, as you, if you will. As well, and, and it's, it's a strange way to build your doctrine, to take these kind of sort of historical redemptive events that have very specific, extraordinary uh, place in the history of salvation and make them into normative occurrences for the rest of the church. You guys follow me on that? And build your whole doctrine on it. Just gotta be careful about that. Understand, go read the context. I just want to drive you to this. If I could leave you anything. Next week we'll deal with the proper subjects about what about infant baptism? Um, you know, what about it? So we'll deal with that. Uh, infant baptism, believers baptism, and hopefully get to the Lord's Supper. But what I, what I want to sort of drive at here is when you read the Bible text, read the text. Go and ask, who are the pronouns speaking to? Where is this in the history of, of God's redemptive plan? How does this fall? You just don't go pull texts out of their context and build doctrines around them. You guys follow me on that? Just not how the Bible's meant to work. It's a book that tells you about real historical events. Real historical events happen here. We believe that. Historical events, I don't you don't try to repeat the signing of the declaration every year in America, right? Of independence. We we don't we don't try to repeat all of these historical events because we're not supposed to. They're historical events that we're supposed to read about and learn from. You you guys get that. Okay? Alright, so I could go off on that for quite a while. Let me pray. Um, and then next week we'll get into subjects, proper subjects of baptism, um, as well as the administration of baptism and, and then the Lord's Supper. Uh, hopefully we'll spend most of the time on the Lord's Supper. Um, Alright, let me pray. Father, thank you for um, the fact that you have superintended your word by your spirit, that you have historically saved us, that you created us and you sustain us and that you have worked out a plan that you had to redeem us in your son, that we get to read about that in your word, that we get to learn from you, that your spirit then applies your word to our lives. Help us to be faithful to understand what your spirit has told us, uh, nothing more and, and nothing less, that we would be people of the book, that we would follow your word, that we would cling to your word as our, as our final authority, because we know that your son is the head of the church, and that he has given his word, and it's to be obeyed and believed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.